Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. From Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. In December, Nestle and Cargill were in the Supreme Court being sued by six people for the harms they suffered being forced into child labor on cocoa plantations. The case is one that's been making its way through the courts for over a decade. In that time, Nestle got fair trade certification for their Kit Kat bar and then dropped it, as we've been discussing over the past few episodes. In that time, millions of children spent their youth working on cocoa plantations, and a lot has changed in how we think about ethical supply chains. But some things are still the same. Forced and child labor remain a huge issue in cocoa, and at the root are poverty prices. We started this series going through the ingredients in a Kit Kat bar and the stories behind them. Last episode, we caught up on the story with Joanna Pollard of Fairtrade Yorkshire. They're the ones campaigning in support of Ivorian cocoa farmers calling for Nestle to continue to deal with them on fair trade terms. If you haven't already, go back and listen to it. I don't want to drop too many spoilers, but it really shows in real time how a corporation like Nestle can make a promise, redefine it, then sell their compromise as some sort of victory. That process, those redefinitions and new pledges has been a theme throughout this series. We've heard from so many guests how Nestle has walked away from commitments to farmers and fair trade, on deforestation, and on child labor. In this episode, our campaigns manager, Anna Canning, is going to talk to Terry Collingsworth. Terry is a lawyer who has dedicated his career to holding corporations like Nestle accountable for human rights violations. In that case that Nestle's facing in the Supreme Court that I was talking about just a minute ago, that's his work. Hi, it's Anna. Over the last few episodes, we've traced all the ingredients in a Kit Kat bar. Now we're going to diverge a little from cocoa, sugar, and all the rest. This episode, we're going to talk about another constant ingredient in our global industrial food system, money and power. It doesn't quite fit so neatly on a label, but maybe it should. Imagine a little disclosure of how little the farmer earned and just how much the corporation took in and how they used that to buy still more power. Corporations have certainly rigged the system plenty. And we've followed how Nestle has turned so many demands for better practices into little more than marketing. Today, we're talking with Terry Collingsworth, Executive Director of International Rights Advocates, a Washington, D.C.-based human rights advocacy group. They are cutting through that marketing noise with a single focus. That's all we do is sue multinational companies for violating human rights in their global operations. So in, like in your career, which came first for you, human rights or law? Kind of a combination. I, I, I'm old enough that when I went to law school, I was going to be a union lawyer. So I wanted to work for unions. I had worked in a factory and was a member of uh, the International Association of Machinists for five years. But by the time I got out of law school, globalization had really started to explode. And it was clear that we needed uh, to do something about the abuse of workers in situations where U.S. companies and European companies had offshored to places where they could abuse workers all over again and start the clock on 
when those workers would get organized. So I started out with the with the goal of trying to do something internationally to help uh, uh, workers in the global economy. Interesting. And so what what first brought your attention to cocoa and the conditions faced by people who grew that crop? Right after I started doing this work, which was 1990, I uh, became aware of the cocoa situation from reports of friends who had done some research there. The Civil War in uh, in Cote d'Ivoire prevented someone like me, who's obviously white, uh, from sort of just parachuting in there and walking around. It would have been very dangerous. So I sent some other people uh, to do research. And by 1998 or nine, we had some very solid information uh, linking uh, the multinational cocoa companies to the child slavery, particularly at that time, Nestle and Cargill. Uh, the first real action we took was that I started working with uh, Elliot Engels on in the, the House of Representatives and uh, pressed for legislation that would have banned the importation of products coming in, cocoa products coming in that was produced by uh, child's forced or, ch- or child slavery. Um, Engels put a bill through the House of Representatives with a huge bipartisan majority. And, and we were really encouraged by that and celebrated uh, that we might actually be able to do something quickly for a change. Dating myself here, but remember that Schoolhouse Rock song? Right now, it's just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. Getting voted through the U.S. House of Representatives is a first step. But to actually become the law of the land, that same bill also has to get passed by the Senate and finally signed by the president. We had kind of caught them by surprise in the House when the bill went over to the Senate. The cocoa companies hired the biggest lobbyists you can imagine, including Bob Dole and Mitchell. That's former Senator George Mitchell and former Senator and presidential candidate Bob Dole. And uh, they uh, they watered down the law to become the Harkin-Engel Protocol, which was a voluntary initiative where in 2001, the companies promised to stop using child labor by 2005. Uh, after that, they gave themselves three extensions of time unilaterally without any input and now they're promised that by 2025, they will reduce by 70% their reliance on child labor. Now, that's interesting because that admits they're using it. They, they, they cannot deny it, but they're admitting they're using it and they're saying, we'll stop voluntarily when we're ready to do that, is essentially their position. So in 2005... After they missed their first deadline, that was the first lawsuit we filed against Nestle and Cargill uh, on behalf of formerly enslaved children who had had managed to escape and return to their homes in Mali, where I met them and where we gathered additional facts to sue these companies. So often, like you hear about human trafficking or something in the news and you know you see like the mug shots of that one bad guy but you're not going after one bad guy one individual one farm owner whatever why is that well this is a system it is a production system that was set up by and for the benefit of these large multinational companies and they rely on this system of cheap cocoa 
that they know is harvested by either child labor or trafficked child labor. I don't make a moral distinction. I think that they're both highly illegal when you realize the dangerous work these children are doing and how many of them are doing it. But it, it would not exist without these multinational companies and all of the small farmers that are barely scraping by because the price of cocoa is so low. They are completely dependent on these relationships they have with cooperatives that then have relationships with the multinational companies. So going after one farmer isn't going to do a thing. You have to stop it at the top. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no question, right, that there's forced labor and child labor in all of Nestle's supply chains for cocoa, right? There's no question. So what is the question then that's actually at stake in your case that is currently in the Supreme Court? You're not going to believe the the issue that Nestle and Cargill have raised in the United States Supreme Court. This case that's now in front of the Supreme Court is the same one that Terry and international rights advocates filed back in 2005. They'd actually earned a favorable decision in the lower court and were about to go to trial when Nestle and Cargill appealed, landing the case in the Supreme Court. And the question presented is they claim that because they are corporations, they cannot be liable under international law. Only individuals can. And I'll have to say, I was floored that they would have sort of the chutzpah to make that argument. It, it is, it's an insanely uh, horrible position to take. Slavery is okay as long as you're a corporation. That's what they argue. So the, the, the argument was by telephone. And so we didn't get to see the expressions on the faces of some of the justices when they asked their questions. But even Justice Olito and Justice Thomas, the two most conservative justices on the court, clearly found this position to be outrageous. Justice Alito said something like, your position would lead us to some conclusions that I don't think we would be comfortable with. And all of the other justices asked hypotheticals like, you mean to say that if 20 people are, are trafficking children and abusing them and making them work on cocoa plantations. But if they formed a corporation, it would be okay. I mean, that's the essence of their argument. So um, we'll see. I mean, behind closed doors, this is a very conservative Supreme Court. They might figure out some other way to help out the corporations, but I don't think they're going to rule that corporations are legally permitted to engage in child slavery simply because they're corporations. Can you talk a little bit about the law that you are filing the case under that's in the Supreme Court right now? Yes. Um, it's called the Alien Tort Statute, and it was passed in 1789 by the very first Congress, the founding fathers, if you will, thought that we should have a law that would allow for violations of the law of nations to be brought in U.S. courts. This, the law has exactly 16 words. This law is short, and its title is even shorter. But each word of it needs a little explanation. Alien, in this case, has nothing to do with extraterrestrials. It's an old-fashioned word for people who aren't U.S. citizens that lives on in some legal texts. And in common speech, it's a pretty offensive way to refer to our fellow humans. Tort is a specific legal term for a wrongful act that harms or injures a person, regardless of whether that harm is intentional, accidental, or due to negligence. 
and statute, that's another word for law. This language is old, but that's because that's just how long it's been clear that these sort of human rights violations are bad. It essentially says that an alien can sue for in tort for a violation of the law of nations. One more definition here. Way back before we had all the volumes of international law that currently exist, there was a notion of the law of nations. We're talking about a sort of general consensus way back even in the time of the ancient Roman emperors that there were some things that are just off limits. What counts? That's a short list. That is slavery, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, torture, and extrajudicial killing. And I, whenever a multinational company representative will debate me in public, I love to ask, which of those are you concerned you're going to get caught doing? Because you are so aggressively opposed to this law that it makes me think that you believe that you are responsible for one of those heinous crimes. And if I were you, I'd spend my time making sure we aren't doing those things than trying to kill a law that gives us a cause of action for anyone who does violate those serious human rights standards. Terry and human rights lawyers have been using the alien tort statute since the 90s. At first, they had some success suing multinational corporations over abuses in their supply chains. But then... Corporate America lined up behind killing it and began, in all of our cases, filing amicus briefs to take outrageous positions to limit the scope of the of the statute. This organized push for corporate immunity was on full display in the case representing formerly enslaved child laborers at the Supreme Court this December. The, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the U.S. Council of International Business, they all filed briefs in favor of the position taken by uh, Nestle and Cargill. And corporate America's efforts to undermine legal protections have paid off for them. In a 2016 decision in a case called Kiobel v. Royal Dutch Shell, the Supreme Court added onto the original requirements of the alien tort statute. So they invented, by a five to four uh, majority, a new standard that says you have to show that the claims you bring touch and concern the territory of the United States. Wholly invented. And Scalia and all these originalists, so-called originalists, they suddenly were not so willing to just look at the language of the statute. They doubled it and made invented completely this new standard. So what it means in practice is we have to show that the companies participated in the human rights violations in some measurable way from the United States. So in Nestle, we, we argued that uh, the companies provide funding, planning, marketing, pesticides, education, and this fake child labor policy, the Harkin Angle Protocol, that all occurred in the United States so they could continue to sell their cocoa in the United States. The lower courts agreed that this was enough U.S.-based activity to count, and that in short, the question from the Supreme Court is basically whether out of sight, out of mind applies to corporate supply chains and the people who work in them. If the Supreme Court sides with Nestle and Cargill on this one, that's really bad news for all of us who hope to hold corporations accountable. So I don't expect that they're going to do anything with it. But we're in line with everyone else now that we have a bare majority in the Senate and the House and a Democratic president. 
with with a minimal effort, like changing three words, we could fix and restore the alien tort statute with an amendment. And I hope we can get that done because uh, it's it's really a shame that we are being deprived of this basic tool. So I'm not a lawyer at all, obviously. But one of the things that has sort of trickled down to my level of legal understanding out of the Supreme Court in the last decade or so is that we went through this entire process where there was an argument that corporations are, in fact, people for the sake of speech. And this case now seems to be, to some extent, them wanting to have that both ways. Absolutely. The the famous case, Citizens United, uh, gave corporations, freed corporations from any fin- financing restrictions uh, that they had previously had and allowed them to make unlimited contributions because they are people too. They, they essentially had, were empowered with the same rights under the 14th Amendment as, as human beings. We, we had a section in our brief in the Supreme Court mocking that, uh, the, the having it both ways, but we we thought that maybe that was a little too cute that the justices knew that and didn't need it thrown in their face. So we ended up not keeping it in. They know they they're fully aware that what they did in Citizens United and how it affects this uh, situation. It turns out that just like the rest of us, lawyers arguing before the Supreme Court have to decide how much to tease out corporate hypocrisy. But Terry points out, it's not that this is just an inconsistency. It is baked into the system. If you ask um, an officer of a corporation, they will simply say that the corporation exists to make money, period. So can you blame them for being sort of greedy and trying to have it both ways in the law, getting everything they possibly can with their money and power? That's what they exist for. And what we exist for as a a society and as a democracy, I hope, is to restrict that power so that it doesn't hurt people. That's what you do with with power or greed. You try to regulate it so that it doesn't hurt people. And uh, that's sort of how we view our job here. It's up to us to try to stop them here, where these executives all go home after making millions of dollars and pat their kids on the head and probably don't even think about the fact that they're enslaving other kids to keep their kids in this mansion somewhere in an enclave that is protected by a fence. Yeah, since we're sort of shifting gears to like the the actual human impacts of this case, how did you first connect with the the people who you are representing who were then, you know, formerly enslaved child laborers? A a person working with me back in in the late 90s, uh, her name is Natasha Tees. She's a Haitian American. Uh, she was making the trips there initially. She speaks French and she can easily move around without drawing too much attention to herself. Uh, and she heard of and then met a Malian man named Mako. Now, Mako was the Malian general or council general to the Malian embassy in Cote d'Ivoire. He had a very high position there. He started noticing that the trafficking particularly in the late 90s, when the civil conflict ended in Cote d'Ivoire, the the cocoa business exploded and they needed more bodies to do it. And trafficking just really went through the roof. 
So Mako started noticing that his people from Mali were being trafficked. Little kids from Mali were coming in to do this work. He started raising the alarm about that and complaining and raising the visibility of the issue. He was told by his embassy, which presumably was told by the much more powerful government of Cote d'Ivoire, to knock it off, uh, to stop uh, complaining about this. It was damaging relations between the countries. And he didn't. He refused. He kept uh, raising the profile. He even started rescuing some kids and they fired him. So he then became uh, an unrestrained advocate for and activist for uh, the trafficking issue and began helping kids. He rescued of our first six uh, boys in the in the, the case in the Supreme Court, John Doe's one through six. He rescued personally John Doe's four and five and took them back to Mali. And he helped many other kids get back there. So he uh, agreed to begin interviewing kids who could identify where they worked, how long they worked, who could tell their stories credibly so that we could then uh, select a few of them to be the class representatives in the first case. So it was Mako who introduced us to all of them. And he also introduced me to the eight young men who were are now the plaintiffs in the new case. Mako and I speak regularly and we are now not only collaborators, but I, I, I have just tremendous respect for him. Not many people would put their own livelihood and, and reputation and all of that on the line to correct such a horrible practice. And he did and continues to do so. Wow. And that's like 20 plus years on. Yes, it is. We both uh, have great a bit, but uh, uh, the fire burns bright Back in episode one, where Frank and 14 mentioned Nestle's cocoa plan, that's their plan for, quote, better farming, better lives, and better cocoa, Frank and 14 know it as a program to improve productivity. Similar to their palm oil programs, which Robin of Rainforest Action Network criticized in episode three, the standards aren't public. We've criticized the program in a number of ways throughout the series. Now I ask Terry about this plan and specifically how Nestle is addressing child labor through their company programs. Well, first of all, Nestle and the other companies got away with using only the Harkin-Angle protocol until about 2015. The Harkin-Angle protocol is that deal that the companies signed on to back in 2000, promising to get rid of child labor in their supply chains. That's the one we keep talking about where Nestle and all keep giving themselves an extension just a little longer to end their exploitative business practices. But by about 2015, the activist community was no longer buying the Harkin-Angle protocol line, that that was clearly nonsense and it wasn't going to result in anything. So they all started rolling out these these new uh, programs. And uh, again, it shows the the collusion between these companies at the highest levels that they all through the World Cocoa Foundation created the same program together and the CMLRS. That's child labor monitoring and remediation systems. That they all described that they have. And uh, so they, they, they were able to say, well, now we're really digging down. We have this new thing. So don't worry, we're on top of the problem. I went to... Um, Cote d'Ivoire in 2019, and then February or March or so of 2020, then we couldn't go anymore. 
But I had one of the most productive trips ever. I was able to interview uh, the World Cocoa Federation's representative there, Tim McCoy. He's a vice president. Uh, he's the highest official in Cote d'Ivoire for them. So he began our meeting by saying, sure, he's from Tennessee. So he put on this like enhanced drawl. Uh, but he's like, you know, when I was a child, I got up every morning and helped my parents milk the cows before I went off to school. And that's all that's going on here. These kids, there's a lot of kids, but they're just helping their parents. And I kind of lost it. And I said, Tim, have you ever been to a plantation? These kids are not helping milk the cows or doing a little chore before school. They're not in school. They're using dangerous tools, machetes, and they're applying pesticides and herbicides without any direction whatsoever and no protective equipment. That is not unusual. That's the norm. I don't believe I've ever been to a plantation in Cote d'Ivoire in all the years I've been doing this work where when we're just randomly driving around that I don't go to a plantation and there are kids working there, they're using machetes and they're applying pesticides. I was able to interview uh, the representative for the Fair Labor Association, which does the monitoring that Nestle cites on their on their website. The Fair Labor Association is a U.S.-based initiative created by Nike and others in response to campaigns calling on big sportswear companies to eradicate sweatshops in their supply chains. Nestle was the first food company to sign on. The Fair Labor Association's efforts to promote compliance with core international labor standards has been criticized for going easy on corporations in the past. But I spoke to the Fair Labor Association that is doing Nestle's work, so it's, it's really uh, applicable to them in particular. They take a very small percentage of their, their supply chain. And it ranges between companies from 20 to 30% maximum. And they then focus on that, that they're creating this small program that they can say, we're monitoring this and we're remediating that. But if you ask the right question, they admit that that's all they're doing, that the 70 or 80 percent of it is is what one person there called the free zone. There, there's no monitoring. Do whatever you want. And so that's the fraud of their new approach. Now, if they were sitting here now, they would say, yes, but we're gradually going to you know, roll it out. Well, when in past 2025 I and mean, how many more years do you a billion multi-billion dollar corporation get to get away with using child slaves when you could fix it tomorrow if that were a serious commitment. So these new programs are simply what you, know, you would call a, a, show, a show program or a, uh, a fake uh, program. They're misleading the public by creating, very strongly creating the impression that that applies to their entire system and that everything is now fixed. It isn't. Terry points out that we're speaking of Nestle in particular, but the model is similar across the big chocolate brands. And Terry is super passionate here, but he's not just a lawyer advocating on behalf of his clients. Last fall, a report came out commissioned by the World Chocolate Foundation, an industry trade group. That report showed that those child labor monitoring systems that Terry has been talking about reduced child labor by about 30% in the communities where they are put in place. And as Terry just pointed out, those programs exist in just a fraction of communities. All that is to say that it shouldn't come as a surprise that child labor rates are increasing. 
It's now been 20 years since the big chocolate companies first pledged to end child labor in their supply chains. Their voluntary child labor monitoring and remediation systems are making slow progress. And corporate interests have managed to gut the alien tort statute that advocates had been using to hold corporations accountable. Now, as the case against Nestle and Cargill has been waiting on the Supreme Court, Terry's team has also been traveling back and forth to Cote d'Ivoire and doing more research. So we filed this new case, uh, February 12, 2021, under this Trafficking Victims Protection Act, that in fact, the trafficking statute was designed for just this very thing, which is stopping the use of trafficked or forced child labor in supply chains. And it has essentially three elements. We have to show that a venture exists. A venture is a loose association. It doesn't have to be a legal joint venture. A venture exists. And here we have the companies working together since at least 2001 with the Harkin Angle Protocol, with the World Cocoa Federation or Foundation, and also now with these new CMLRS programs. That's child labor monitoring and remediation systems? They're cooperating. They're working together as a venture. So that's the first element. The second element is we have to show that the venture uses or has forced or trafficked child labor. And that's easy here. My, the plaintiffs here were all trafficked. They were, they were essentially kidnapped by false pretenses from uh, Mali, and they were taken to work on cocoa plantations that are in the supply chains of these companies. And then the last element is we have to show the companies knowingly benefited from the child slavery. And of, of course they do. That's their entire business model here. They're getting cheaper cocoa because a whole bunch of it, most of it even, is being harvested by forced child labor or whatever they want to call regular child labor. But the U.S. Uh, Department of Labor study came out in October of 2020, just a few months ago, that they funded the University of Chicago's Nork Institute to try to quantify today what is the child labor situation. They found that since the last study in 2015, child labor went up and there are now 1.58 million children harvesting cocoa in in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. That, isn't that an astounding number? So all of this fake programming that they're doing, all of the money they're spending on claiming that they're working on their cocoa promises, their cocoa promise is a lie. And there's no debate whatsoever that there's more kids today in using harvesting cocoa in the supply chains of Nestle and the other big companies than there were when I started doing this work in 2000 when we sued them in 2005, they're just, they know they're getting away with it and they're not doing a thing to really stop it. So this new statute. That's the Trafficking Victims Protection Act that this new case is filed under. It's going to really go after the supply chain itself. And it's not a defense for them to say, that's not us. Uh, it's the farmers that are doing this. We just buy the cocoa. This law makes them responsible for what happens in their supply chain if they're knowingly benefiting from it. You know, and, and one other point I would like to make about that, though, is the trafficked part. The Fair Labor Association person who does the monitoring for Nestle, he conceded to me that it's really hard for them to identify trafficked labor because the, the kids themselves and the farmers are trained to lie. 
that you you go, you go up and you ask a kid, how did you get here? Oh, that's my uncle. That's the, that's what they normally say. I'm working with a, just a brilliant guy in uh, Cote d'Ivoire. His name is Anjaboa. He's 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 a, a Reuters uh, a reporter. So I've been fortunate that I did some trips with Anj, who's been doing this work for a long time and is very sophisticated in his analysis. And he would be able to tell us by the dialect or accent of the kid if they were even from Cote d'Ivoire. And there were several instances where a kid said, uh, no, this is my uncle, or I, I've been here, I go to school. And Anj would say, no, 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 you're from Burkina Faso, aren't you? And then the kid would sort of hesitate and then eventually confess that, yeah, in fact, he's from Burkina Faso and he's only 12, not 15. And you got to spend the time. But that's one of the things I think we still need to do, because I don't know why the Department of Labor wasn't interested in that. That's probably one of the most important questions is, are they trafficked? Are, that means they're way more vulnerable if they don't have any family around. So, But I'm just saying that for whatever reason, they didn't focus on it. So this story here isn't just a gotcha kind of moment. It really underscores how important it is for the people who are asking sensitive questions to know and understand the community. And it, the companies at least admit that they don't really do a good job of digging down to find out. But there are a lot of kids who are trafficked. In my own anecdotal experience, about half of them were trafficked when we finally got a chance to interview them in some length. And then... Of course, on the other side of the border in Mali, Mako is collecting kids who were trafficked and managed to escape back home. There's a bunch of them there, thousands. So it's a bigger problem than I think most people are uh, willing to uh, acknowledge. And at the end of the day, every existing inspection program out there is one that was set up by the companies to inspect themselves. And, you know, in the monitoring world, we just laugh and say, there's never been a case where the fox guards the chicken coop effectively. You just cannot ever trust that system. It is not credible by definition. And until we get the companies to agree to an independent monitoring system that they aren't in charge of and that they aren't uh, threatening to withhold money from, you're not going to get honest monitoring going on in the cocoa sector. Terry's been around for a while. He's seen the attempts to get a real law watered down into the Harkin Engel Protocol, that promise to end child labor that we've been talking about all episode. And so I ask him what he thinks about the possibility of new legislation now, especially given the current makeup of the House and Senate. Well, I think there's a better chance now simply because of the track record of the companies. They signed that in 2001, 20 years later. Um, they've given themselves another extension of time. So it's not like the companies can come in with their lobbyists and say, don't worry, we got this. Well, I think they've lost all credibility and it'd be hard for them to kill it. But let, let me say that I think our existing laws, particularly that trafficking statute, are probably sufficient to allow us to win a case. And that will do a lot to uh, raise the profile of this, but also to create huge potential liability for the companies. I think, though, what we're lacking and what I spend a lot of time puzzling over is that we need consumers and, and, and people who care about children in Africa to step up and demand that the company stop this and let them know they're not going to buy their products anymore until they do stop it. The companies are getting away with this by paying their lawyers to try to keep me at bay because the consumers aren't 
putting any pressure on them at all. And I think that that is something that really, really needs to be done. And we're, we're trying our best to unite with others. We had an incident in uh, the fall where after George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement really exploded on the scene, both Nestle and Cargill tweeted out their support for Black Lives Matter. And I, I, I burst a gasket over that. I was like, you know, I, I know some black lives that you don't think matter. There are these kids that are picking your, your cocoa in West Africa, and you're allowing them to be literally tortured every single day. Do you care about those African kids, those black kids? And they didn't respond to me. But I mean, that is just so outrageous. So we're trying to reach out to other groups to to educate them. Like, did you know? And most, in most cases, people don't know that these companies are, are, are using slavery. So that's, that's step one. Uh, I think what we're about to do next as the international rights advocates is try to work with partners and set up a new entity that could serve as an independent monitoring body that, that we could drive the companies into. Because we need to be ready if I win this case, either one of them. Or if some company finally decides that they're going to not spend money on lawyers and try to uh, actually solve the problem, we need a monitoring system that is credible. And I refer people to a wonderful program called Goodweave that monitors hand-knotted carpets in South Asia. Consumers now know that if their carpet has that label, it was child labor free. And I think we could do that with Cocoa. Uh, we need a, a, a real label that signifies only, the only thing it is signifying is that this has been monitored and certified as child labor free, you can rest assured. And I think that we did it in uh, the carpet sector, which was much more difficult because those looms are spread all over South Asia. You got to find them in a barn, in a shack, but the plantations that grow cocoa, they're very centralized. You can drive around the entire cocoa sector in Cote d'Ivoire in about six hours. And uh, that would be so easy to map out and monitor. I I hope someday while I'm still breathing air that we get a chance to do that. Well, I must say personally, I am skeptical about one more label being the thing that will solve the problem of cocoa. You know, I think there was a study that came out last year there are currently something like 92 sustainability initiatives in West Africa <laughs> trying to you know put different bandages on the cocoa problem as it were and you know i'm not sure that one more is going to get us there but part of the reason there's a proliferation of of labeling though is that the companies enjoy that i mean they They'll support one over here, then somebody else support that one over there because they want to create consumer confusion. But if they have to become invested to to not go out of business in uh, supporting a, a, a child labor free initiative, then that might clear the the field of some of those other uh, labels that are just there to confuse people. Uh, so I just have one one last question for you here at the top of the hour. What would a truly fair, sustainable chocolate trade look like to you? Well, I think the key components are going to be uh, not, this is not my my own thought. I'm reflecting on people I've talked to that know a lot more about the industry than I do. But number one is going to be paying more for the cocoa. Um, you cannot divide up that little bit of money they're paying for uh, the tonnage of cocoa to have 
decent lives for the people who are harvesting the cocoa. It's just impossible. You got to pay more. Now, if you ask any one company, if you ask Nestle, well, why don't you pay more? Their, their only defense is, well, if I pay more, then I'm at a competitive disadvantage from Barry Calvin. Well, fine, let's make them all pay more and uh, make sure then that's step one. So I think it, it is the combination of paying more and then doing the monitoring and certification that the result of paying more is that there are no kids and that the adult workers on these plantations are making a, a decent wage and they have protective equipment and uh, the, the job is not dangerous for them too. Um, that, that will cost money. And I think I would always add at the end of any description of what I'd like to see is that these big companies like Nestle have been profiting for decades on, on the backs of child labor and child slavery. Um, let's make them put a little bit of money into the pot to repair some of the damage they've done. They, they have ruined communities. They've deforested communities. They have left people maimed um, from health accidents and, and other uh, things that happen when you're doing dangerous work all day long. Let's let them clean up their mess a bit too. And then uh, we can all feel good about having a chocolate bar. Um, there are companies that wrote a brief in our case in the Supreme Court. I think there were 18 of them. They filed an amicus brief saying they're small artisanal companies that it can be done right. And they explain in their brief how, but companies that are making a living by producing uh, high quality chocolate that is not produced by children or through deforestation, etc. It can be done. We just got to get the big guys like uh, Nestle to uh, join in the civilization of their industry. conversation with Terry ends in a way that kind of comes full circle for this series. As Marilyn Pressa explained in episode four, fair trade certification developed out of the desire from small scale farmers to distinguish their crops and their ethics from the exploitation of business as usual. And certification also grew in part out of people recognizing that laws and government institutions were not stopping corporations from exploiting people. Terry described that moment when there was about to be a law holding corporations accountable for child labor. And then lobbyists, lobbyists who were former prominent politicians, stepped in and stopped it. That moment represents some of the worst of our system of government, the ways in which we've seen that corporate power has a lot of sway with politicians. I think that's part of why or how the idea of voting with your dollar has been so appealing and so sticky. It's clear that money has power, and too many elected officials are not as dedicated to public service as we would want. But, as we've seen throughout these conversations, voting with your dollar isn't enough to change the system. Corporations are designed, as Terry put it, to get everything they can with their money and power. Maximizing profit is what they are legally bound to do. Everything else, the voluntary commitments and the certifications, are just that. Voluntary. And we've seen how often those commitments are treated more as marketing tools than anything else. Unfortunately, when it comes to voting with our dollars, the election is rigged. We can't buy our way to holding corporations accountable. It's unrealistic. And to reduce a person's fundamental human rights, the right of a child to have a free childhood, down to a choice that gets made by a person in the grocery store, it's not a real choice, and it's definitely not a fair one. 
The stakes in the case that's before the Supreme Court are really high. If the court decides in favor of Nestle and Cargill, it would grant corporations immunity for atrocious abuses in their supply chains, as long as they happen outside the U.S. We'll be watching to see what happens, and we'll be sure to keep you in the loop. The Supreme Court case that Anna and Terry have been talking about is based on the Alien Tort Statute. That was a law written back in 1789 by the Founding Fathers. I go back and forth on this, but is that law more powerful because for over 200 years we've been clear that there are some things that are just not permissible? Or is it just an embarrassment that here in the United States, our human rights law is hanging on a rather antique sounding law from over 200 years ago? I think both of those are true, maybe one a bit more than the other depending on the day. These cases brought by Terry and international rights advocates are putting the heat on Nestle and the other big chocolate companies to address the exploitation in their business model. I'm hoping they win justice for all of those who have been harmed by spending their youth working in awful conditions, and that win would raise the cost of continuing the current business model that is bent on extracting as much as possible from people and the planet. Real corporate accountability can help us get closer to ending child labor, but it's not the only tool. Along with a coalition of other organizations, we've drafted a set of five demands of Nestle, as well as Hershey's, Mars, Lint, and the other big chocolate companies. These demands call for them to address the root causes of child labor, and to do it starting now. One of the key steps is to pay cocoa farmers a living income, because even all those calculations that we discussed last episode don't fully cover a thriving livelihood for farm families. We're also calling for increased transparency and traceability to allow for real accountability. And we're calling on the big chocolate companies to phase out the use of toxic pesticides. Those pesticides are harming the health of children at work in cocoa fields, in addition to their environmental impacts. Add your name to the petition spelling out the demands. We'll have the link in the show notes. We hope you can join us and share with the chocolate lovers in your lives. Thanks for joining us on For a Better World. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be talking to Charity Ryerson of Corporate Accountability Lab. She's thinking a lot about the ways to change the system and make it so we've all got more tools to hold corporations accountable. And that also creates space for fair, ethical businesses to thrive without having to compete with corporations whose models are built on underpaying. Has the series left you with questions on chocolate and what an ethical future might look like? Join us for a live online conversation coming in early May. Follow us on social media to get the details for registration. We'd love to hear what you're thinking. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fairworld Project. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Head to our website, fairworldproject.org, to sign up for our newsletter. It's the best way to stay in the loop with our work and take action to support the movements you hear about on this show. Fairworld Project is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on donations to keep our work going. If you liked what you heard or learned something new, consider becoming a monthly donor. Your contributions help us continue to bring stories like these from around the globe. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay up to date between episodes. For a Better World is made possible by our small but mighty team. Our show is edited by Stephanie DeLeon. Zeke, Jenica Cadill is our producer. Anna Canning is our scriptwriter. Our storytellers are Ryan Zinn and Anna Canning. Our music was composed by Mark Robertson. 
And I'm your host and the executive director of Fairworld Project, Dana Geffner. Thanks for listening.